Hello, I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Our guest for this episode is Selena Couture, a scholar and associate professor in the Dramatic Arts Department at the University of Alberta. She is in conversation with our host, Amja Hall, about her research around Indigenous theatre, performance, and decolonizing practices, and her latest book, Against the Current and Into the Light, Performing History and Land in Coast Salish Territories and Vancouver's Stanley Park. Enjoy the episode! Welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted you could join us again this week. We have our special guest, Selena Couture, joining us. Selena is an associate professor in drama at the University of Alberta and the author of Against the Current and Into the Light, Performing History and Land in Coast Salish Territories and Vancouver Stanley Park. Uh, Welcome, Selena. Thanks, Anne. So nice to join you today, get to talk with you on on this podcast. Really appreciate the invitation. Yeah. Why don't we begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit? Sure. So you already introduced me in terms of my my academic position. I'm an associate prof in drama at U of A, which is on uh, Treaty 6 territory, Métis region number four, Miskechiwiskaigan. And I also, when I introduce myself, particularly because of the, the nature of the scholarship I do, I always try to be really clear about my positionality in relation to it. So I always like to introduce myself as an 11th generation descendant of French settlers and a fifth generation descendant of Irish settlers who came to the lands that are known as Eastern Canada now over 400 years ago. And my family has lived on many treated territories over the years. Treaty 6, my association with U of A is the most recent one for me. And I'm Certainly, it's a it's a process of learning. What does it mean to to uphold treaty for me in this heritage that I have? And then I also really also want to be sure to explain that for the last thirty years I've lived here and where we're recording this today, an unceded traditional and ancestral territory held by the Hunkmanum speaking Hmathquiam and Slewatosh peoples and the Squamish Nichum speaking Squamish peoples. And I really want, and so much of, I mean, so much of what we'll talk about today will unfold this, but living here for these last 30 years has really been a a place where I've learned to unlearn a lot of what it means to be a settler colonizer in this place. Certainly wouldn't say that it's a finished, a finished uh, process by any means, but I have learned from Coast Salish peoples and from a lot of this work that I did for this book, what it means to try to be rather than a settler here, or as Dylan Robinson calls it, a hulitam, which means like a hungry, the hungry ones, the starving ones, how to be a visitor, which in Hankaminam language, it's a word that's constructed out of uh, two words that mean essentially to walk alongside. And so this is a process of learning for me. And this book certainly is a process of how I learned that and also a product of what is what does it mean to be, you know, to be a white settler, to live here in this land and to try and unlearn the meta-narratives of the creation of the city of Vancouver, of Stanley Park, and you know, of Canada generally too. I remember attending your, your doctoral dissertation, which formed the basis of the research from that formed the basis of this book. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the overall project sort of began the conceptualization of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for that uh, 
that prompt because it's certainly a, a huge part of this work is has to do with my doctoral work at UBC and UBC is of course on the unceded Musqueam territory and they have a memorandum of understanding with Musqueam people and there is a a program at the time it was called the First Nations Languages Program and then eventually became the First Nations Endangered Language Program but it's uh, there was a partnership with Musqueam language teachers and uh, Patricia Shaw, a professor at UBC, um, and they had a, a language program, a Hunkaminam language program. And so I came in to do a, a doctoral work in theater. My questions had to do with, with this land and the way that performance had been used by Indigenous people to maintain this as an Indigenous place. Coming here from Eastern Canada in the early 90s, right after the summer of resistance at Ganesatake and Ganawage, and what's known as the Oka crisis, it was very striking to me to, to arrive here and to see this place with so much Indigenous iconography and so much presence of Indigenous people. And it was something I really I really wanted to understand. And when it came time to do doctoral work, those were the questions that were uppermost in my mind as a performance scholar. It's like, how does performance contribute to this? So that was some of the work I was doing and learning of the field of performance studies. And then also prompted by one of my one of my committee members, Cole Thrush, a historian at UBC, who suggested that I take the Hunkabinam language classes as a way to really to learn more about where where we were living, but also to to try and be respectful of the people of this place. And as soon as I took the first language class, it, I realized what a what a powerful thing it was to to try and learn a language and the way that the language gave you different perspective on land and relationships to land. And so there's a core of the book has to do with the concepts that I learned about land and, and particularly around the kinds of place names that are are present here and what they mean, what are the, in terms of the, the places are for, what they, people do in those places, the stories of those places, and then also how to be in relationship to land and actually to water too. I mean, people talk a lot about water, but or about land, but actually we live in a place that is surrounded by water, by the ocean, by the river, and there's a lot in the in the language that has to do with that. So between those two things and being embedded at UBC and with UBC's already existing relationship with Musqueam and my uh, incredible privilege to be able to take those language classes, I just continued to take classes and to build a relationship with the, the Musqueam Language and Culture Program. And they're very, very clear in taking those classes that the protocols around the use of their language. And so everything that I learned, I needed permission from Musqueam Language and Culture Program in order to share it, which they did give me permission to share what, what is in the book. And I feel incredibly honored that they trusted me to do that. A big portion of the book is looking at a kind of counter history of what's known now as Vancouver's Stanley Park and through performance. I'm wondering if you can sort of walk us through how you came to some of the stories that are in the book. And there's also uh, incredible striking images in the book of uh, something called the the Jubilee Show from uh, July of 1946. But there's a, a series of other examples of Stanley Park being this sort of colonial site that in itself was involved in the displacement of Indigenous communities. Uh, sure. I mean, a lot of what I've done in the book builds significantly on previous work of scholars, in particular, Jean Barman, a historian who wrote a book called Secrets of Stanley Park, in which she worked with the descendants of people who had lived in the park, Kanaka people, Hawaiian people, and also Indigenous people. And she really tells the story of the people who lived there and how they were displaced. And a lot of what I have done is building on, on that work that already exists. 
she's not she's not a performance studies scholar. She's not as interested in performance. And so what I was able to do in kind of relation to her work is think about the ways that performance has been used in a very dynamic way. Um, I mean, one of the things I from the study of the language that I eventually came up with as a kind of a theoretical concept that would help me try to express the dynamics of performance was a, a concept of an eddy. So eddies are, of course, very important here in this place where there's so much land and water. And an eddy in the in the water is a place where there's there is some kind of an obstruction and there's water flowing around it. The obstruction changes the current of the water and then creates kind of a, a place that could be, if you were paddling, a place you could, you know, take a rest from the current. It could be a safe place. Or it could also be a place that's actually kind of dangerous, right? And it's knowing where eddies are and what they, the power of them is a really important thing for people who live on the water. And then also thinking about an eddy as a, like a metaphor, a concept and thinking about there's a, there's an obstruction of some sort, which is changing the water current, but that water current itself will eventually work on that obstruction. And so that will change that, the shape of it. And then thus the will also change the current. So there's this constant dynamic back and forth. And so, you know, and the concept of an eddy is quite important in the Hunkaminam language as well. So this is kind of all coming together. And as I was trying to think about performance and the way that performance studies think about, a performance is not just a one-way, you know, expression that lands, you know, nowhere. There's a constant dynamic back and forth. And so, yes, there are colonial performances like the Jubilee show, of which there is, you know, incredible striking images in the Vancouver archives that I was able to build on. Images like, I mean, I think the Jubilee show, it was a celebration of the 60th anniversary of the city of Vancouver. It was held at the Oval, the Cricket Oval that exists there. There were 4,200 performers in the show, and they built what they called the Timber Bowl, which sat 15,000 people. And it was all, the Timber Bowl was to celebrate, you know, the forestry industry here. Um, and that show was you know, extremely long. They had to cut two hours of it after the first night because <laughs> it went on till two in the morning or something. Um, and it started off with, uh, there was a, a narrative, a script that was written that had, you know, originally just a few Indigenous people in the very beginning, and then they disappeared and carried on with the European history of the place. It actually, if we look in the archives, we can see revisions of that script that actually change that dynamic and indigenous people are somewhat present through that script not really but there is a change that happens there and it starts with one of the images probably that you noticed is one called the potlatch ballet which has 125 white settlers in red face um, in quite revealing costumes for 1946 um, doing what they're calling a potlatch ballet with masks and blankets and so that was the opening of the show at that time so yeah it was a mass extravaganza you know, not a surprising kind of story to think about in terms of an attempt to create a colonial narrative. What is surprising, I found in 1946, um, was that the Citizens Committee also commissioned the Native Brotherhood of BC to put on a two-week-long event at Snock, or just also known as, at the time, was Kitsilano Park, or it's now Vandier Park, where the city archives are and where, in non-pandemic times, Bart on the Beach is performed. And... The Native Brotherhood of BC was, of course, an incredibly political organization. They had to do with organizing for fishing rights and were quite a radical organization. And they agreed to put on this show, but actually did it in a really, in a very interesting way. And in contrast, in terms of the archives, where there's unending images of the building of the timber bowl, the different dances, the light show that's going on at the Jubilee show, there are actually no images of what happened 
the Indian Village and Show in the archives. There is a program uh, that was clearly very carefully written and circulated that had to do with the Native Brotherhood of BC and their perspective on the knowledge they were sharing and the dances and the people who were dancing. And, and then a ceremony that they staged that had to do with inviting or, or initiating the new Governor General of Canada, who was an English war hero named Vicont, Harold Alexander, as a chief. Um, so not an uncommon thing, a political move to do. Um, in my book, I talk about how the choice of doing that at that time, particularly in the speech that William Scow read, where he points out that Alexander had was a they on, they were honoring him for his work in the war, and that he was uh, they, he had an honor guard at that ceremony of Indigenous veterans who, in coming back after World War II, had not been afforded all the privileges of other other returning vets. And so I think it was an it was an intervention into the the status of veterans and a connection to this, you know, a governor general in Canada. I mean, it's changed somewhat, but a governor general still have the particular status for Canadians as, you know, representing the Queen. So that's a bit about the colonial, the colonial stuff, but there's a ton more about the indigenous interventions into that as well, because they they carry on. In terms of what was happening related to uh, performance in in the way that you describe at Stanley Park, can we uh, place some sort of historical context? Like, was this also happening in other parts of Canada or North America, or is there something sort of specific to what was going on here that we can read something into it? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, there's one, I think, a really important point to always consider is that, you know, despite the the meta narratives of Canadian history, there's always there's continuously been indigenous resistance to any to any impositions of colonial colonial violence, and I don't know stories of performance in specific places, particularly park places, and as much as I know what's happened in in Stanley Park, but I would you know absolutely agree there's there's been in other places if you dig hard you'll find. Stories and I think what is what is particularly interesting and what I I think could be done in other places is Stanley Park in Vancouver has a particular status. It was the very you know created as park was one of the first motions that the city council did when the city was incorporated as a city in 1885 or I think 86, and then it opened as a park in 1888. It was actually federal reserve, so it's federal land, not municipal land, and then becomes this kind of space of recreation that has, you know, a lot of narratives around it in terms of it's like a, an old growth forest, what the city would like like if we hadn't built a city, and which Sean Carrage writes a great book called The Invention of Stanley Park that has to kind of puts all that to, to rest about just the, the ways that this is a very manipulated space and that concept that it is untamed nature is, of course, not, uh, not true. But things like, say, Banff, there's a huge story behind Banff and the creation of Banff and the displacement of Indigenous people there. And the, the tension around ideas of conservation and wildlife and nature and the removal of Indigenous people from their lands is a story that's you know, happens all over the place, not just in Canada by any means. So yeah, I mean, I don't know the performance stories in other places, but I'm, I'm quite sure that they are there. Another important point, I guess, to mention is that when I'm talking about performance, I talk about theater performances, but also all sorts of, you know, I talk about place names and speaking a place name as a performance and these kinds of things as well. But the other really important point to connect to is that in the Indian Act in 1885, performances by Indigenous people were outlawed. 
and particularly the potlatch on the West Coast, as they called it. And then they added to that, I think maybe 20 or 30 years later, any performance at all, any off of, off of a reserve. And that ban stayed in place until 1951 when the Indian Act had a reform. And so particularly 1946, the performances that are happening at the Native Brotherhood that the Native Brotherhood of BC is staging at the Indian Village and Show, they are illegal and they can't be. I and mean, of course, during the potluck band, of course, Indigenous people continued to perform. They continued their ceremonies. They just had to do them in ways where they were not as public and could not be caught by Indian agents. And so the opportunity to have two weeks long of, of people dancing and performing and singing songs and transmitting that knowledge in a really large public way is a way that Many, I think, Indigenous people have, over the years have used these sort of windows of opportunity for their own purposes while seeming to follow colonial rules and structures, but actually, you know, having their own agendas fulfilled. And that's certainly what happened with the Indian village and show, I think. One of the strange characters we have in Vancouver history related to the archives is, of course, Major Matthews, whose archives formed the basis of the city of Vancouver archives, but certainly has uh, serious problems and blind spots. Uh, but for our listeners who don't know anything about Major Matthews, could you sort of place his role in the shaping of the archives in, in Vancouver? Sure. Um, so Major Matthews ended up being kind of an enormous figure in my book. And I certainly didn't intend to write a lot about Matthews, but as I was working in the field of performance studies, and particularly there's a, a line of performance studies that is focused on conceptions of history and historiography and how we might use performance as a way to, to understand the transfer of knowledge. And this comes from a, a book by Diana Taylor called The Archive and the Repertoire, which speaks a lot about if we, if we think of an archive as the only repository of, of reliable history, then we discount in the printed documents in an archive, then we discount most of human history. And then many other scholars since her have subsequently developed ways to talk about how performance is actually transferring knowledge and history. So I was quite interested in the archive itself. And so when I began to work in the archive, and I, I think it started with the work on the Jubilee show, and I found out the documentation of the show, and that was at Spapiak and Brockton Point, and then the subsequent work on the Indian Village and show, all of which was in the archives. But then I also kept finding Matthew's interventions into it. Matthews was not a trained archivist. He was born, I think, in 18, let's see, 1898. I can't remember his birthday. He lived until 1970. He was 92 years old. But he was born and, and then immigrated to New Zealand when he was nine years old with his family. They lived there for, I think he lived there for nine or 10 years. It was not a successful move. And then his family left. They left him there, went to another country, and he moved here to what was had just become the city of Vancouver. And then established his life here. He worked, I think he was uh, a manager for Imperial Oil or something like that, and had a young family. And then when World War I broke out, he joined the war. He was in his late 30s by that point, and, or his early 30s by that point, and was a, sort of, you know, supporting the mother, his motherland and joined the efforts. He, of course, World War I was traumatic for, <laughs> for soldiers, and he was very traumatized by it. He was shot in the head, was severely injured, and eventually released from the army due to nervous anxiety, which I think today we would call PTSD. And he returned to Vancouver. There were no supports for veterans at that point. He didn't have a job anymore. His wife left him and he came back to the city and really throughout the 1920s had a very difficult time. And then in 1931, when he was in his early 50s, having gone through a number of personal tragedies, he somehow 
convinced the city of Vancouver to appoint him the archivist. So he had been very interested in old things for a long time. He had been collecting things and he just had whatever kind of personal sway <laughs> to, to convince them to make him an archivist. And so he created an archive. And even though he was not trained as an archivist and he wasn't actually interested, municipal archives were usually about the municipal affairs of the city and they're tracking the documents and those sort of things. He wasn't that interested in it. He was actually much more interested in collecting stories. And he, I mean, he interviewed longshoremen, like he interviewed people who would not necessarily have had their stories collected, including August Jack Casolano. He had a series, he had a relationship with Casolano and he has a a book that he put out called Conversations of Hatsalano, which he records in his own perspective, those, those conversations. So there's all of this sort of base of Matthews. And then, of course, he's, he is British and he is uh, very interested in, this, in the pioneers, in celebrating the hardy pioneers who created the city. And he goes and he records a lot of their stories. He's constantly seeking out the first pioneers. And then eventually he lands on realizing that the Lord Stanley dedicating the park is a, a narrative that he's quite excited by. And he puts together publications and then eventually reenactments of Lord Stanley dedicating the park. The first one that he does, I think, is 1943. Kind of a strange one. It's in the middle of the war. The, most of Stanley Park is closed. It's odd that he would try and rededicate the park at this point. Um, but he does. And he looks for all the people who you know, our descendants of the original people who would have been around during whatever event happened in 1889, find some of them and then crafts together a script that he gives to Lord Stanley. And that, and then he carries on doing that over and over and over again until eventually he's created a, uh, in 1960, a monument is erected, which you can see in the park still. And it says Lord Stanley standing, you know, his legs spread out wide and kind of a victory stance with his arms way up high. Um, and it says on the bottom to dedicate this park to the use and pleasure of people of all colors, creeds and customs for all time. I named the Stanley Park. So what I was able to find through a careful perusal of his archive, because he was pretty obsessive, as you can tell by his like rededications and dedications and reenactments and, and his, in his need as an archivist to, in, to be also a public historian, that there was actually no record of Lord Stanley ever saying anything when he came to the park. He certainly came in 1889. He was given a tour. They stopped at Chathos, which is known as Prospect Point. Oppenheimer made a speech to him that was printed in the papers. Um, but there's no record of Stanley saying or doing anything. And instead, what I was able to trace by going through Matthew's work was that he had pieced together the gesture by interviewing a guy who worked at the waterworks who saw it. And then also the... The phrasing, which I think is a really, I say, I make the point in my book about that, that particular phrase and it, and there is something about it that is uplifting, right? Like the idea that Lord Stanley would come in 1889 and dedicate this beautiful space to the use and pleasure of people of all colors, creeds and customs is a beautiful thought. And of course, but it's what I call it, uh, a disaffiliation. It's actually, uh, it's a lie. <laughs> it's actually that argument that, that Matthew's made up to, to really make Lord Stanley look much better than he was. What was done at that time was Oppenheimer in his speech to Stanley said, we will honor your presence here on this day by building you a cairn, which is, you know, a classic sort of way to mark something. Um, but the cairn will be made up of all of the mineral resources of BC. And so that, of course, makes a lot more sense to me of how do you mark, uh, you know, a British diplomat's visit to the area? What are the British doing here? They're extracting mineral resources. So uh, marking his visit with that makes a lot more sense. However, 
that wasn't ever built. Matthews figures out that Oppenheimer made a promise to mark his visit and that, that it was never followed through. And then in 1952, he takes it on himself that he's going to, he is going to fulfill that promise to Lord Stanley's descendants by uh, creating a monument, which he designs the statue, commissions it, crowdsources the funds, has it built, has a fight with the city when they won't put it where he wants it to be. He wants it to be at the entrance to the park where it is because he, Matthews, I think, won every fight he had. And, but the city wanted it to be where he, where Matthews had been, which was actually what's now at Prospect Point. Anyway, he wins the fight and he gets the monument erected and, and he puts on the base of the monument that phrase. And then in my searching the archives, I realized where he found that phrase was from the mayor of Vancouver. Uh, briefly, there was a mayor named Dr. Telford, who was also really known for his work in the CCF. He was kind of the known as the the voice of the CCF through the 30s. He helped popularize socialism in BC. Um, he was a member of parliament, or a member of the legislature at one point, and then eventually briefly the mayor of Vancouver, from just from 1939 to 1940. And so somehow this, you know, radical socialist mayor, it fell to him at the 50th anniversary of Lord Stanley's visit to the park to write a letter to his descendants. And so he did that in 1939. He writes a letter to Lord Stanley's descendants saying, we're honoring your great-grandfather here. Um, and I just want you to think about, you know, this beautiful land. He has all this sort of really beautiful language about the greenness of it. And, and with a lot of rhetorical flourish, which makes a lot of sense, given who Telford is, uh, writes, you know, we, we think about uh, Lord Stanley as he lifted up his hands and embraced this beautiful place and dedicated it to the people of all colors, creeds and customs, which knowing Telford, who actually spoke against the internment of the Japanese at the time, and knowing that it was he's writing to British people who are under attack by Nazis, like the rise of fascism is happening in, the, in Europe. And so that the context of that sentiment makes quite a lot of sense that Telford is writing it in 1939. He's, you know, attributing it to Stanley, uh, to, to Stanley saying it, but it's actually, I think his, those were his words, I, I believe. There's no other rec written record of Stanley saying anything. And so Matthews, I think, recognizes the brilliance of what Telford has said. And then he gives that to, to Lord Stanley. And that's what's reenacted over and over again when he does the live performances in the park. And then that's what is eventually etched on the, on the statue in the park, which is, you know, a beautiful thought when you walk by it, but also a thought that is actually confusing in a way that as I was really researching this and I came upon a piece by Lee Merkel, solo writer Lee Merkel, I'm sure many of your listeners know her, and she's in a piece called Mink Visits the Park. And Mink is the witnessing uh, Lord Stanley say this and is very skeptical <laughs> of him saying this. So, so I think it's a, anyway, it's a, a very interesting piece. It's a real and certainly supports a lot of performance studies thought about the instability of archives and that, of course, archives are absolutely a, a place where we can go to investigate and try and understand the past, but that we have to understand that they are actually not these um, necessarily very stable places, that they are, there are interventions in archives. There's a lot of power that has gone into creating them. And certainly in the city of Vancouver, Matthews had an enormous amount of power. I mean, the city of Vancouver, I think, is the I remember correctly, it's the first municipality in Canada to have a municipal archive, and that has to do with Matthew's efforts. And it's also the first municipality to have a purpose-built building for a municipal archive, which also has to do with Matthew's because when he died in his will, he stipulated that unless the city built 
a purpose-built archival building, he would sell off all the things that he owned that had to do with the city's history. And so the city very quickly in 1971 or 72 built the archive that is adjacent to the planetarium. And it has to do with, you know, Matthew's beyond the grave reaching out and influencing the city. And it, you know, it's an incredible legacy, but it's one that has to be really critically understood. That was a long, that was a long answer to your question there. No, that that's really fascinating. I'm wondering in in the process of doing your research, encountering these images and counter histories and figures like uh, Matthews, how do you, based on your own research, how do you read into the the present context? Like, what changed in you in, in doing the research and how you read the political moment now? Oh wow. Um, so much changed in doing this research. And there was a, certainly with Matthews, there was an awareness of like how to be much more critically aware of the kinds of things that we think of as the, you know, brass plaques that tell us the history of places and the kinds of powers and personalities that, that help create those things, those kind of narratives and the continuous actions and resistance and refusals that Indigenous people have been doing since the, the Europeans arrived here. And I think that is something that there's a way that the kind of history that we have learned in Canada often has to do with a kind of an oblivion, a settler oblivion to previous actions. And so when, you know, when I don't know more, like takes off in the summer, the winter of 2012, it's, you know, seen as this, you know, unprecedented, remarkable, like shocking actions. Well, of course it's not. And Glenn Coulthard, of course, has talked a lot about this and that there's a, there's an incredible continuum. And so doing this work and making it so localized here, I began to understand that long continuum of, assertion, right, that has always been here, and particularly actually the Native Brotherhood of BC. And then I guess another another piece I would say to that is in doing all of the work, and particularly the archival work, I was very aware that there's very few women ever in archives. Women's work is never, like women's presence is very rarely documented officially, and then particularly Indigenous women are even more absent from an archive. And so that was a part of what I was learning by being present in this place while I was writing all of this, I was, of course, going to performances. And what struck me was that there were so many, many of the performances I was going to were by Indigenous women who were themselves intervening in uh, in historical narratives. And as a way to, to honour that, I included responses to performances in the book. So the first one is by Julia Sparrow, a Musqueam actor and playwright. It's called Ashes in the Water, and it was a pod play, so it's an audio play. And it has to do with the fire of Vancouver and the decision by Indigenous women on the North Shore to come and rescue the settlers. It's a very striking audio play. It takes place in the sort of gas town near the water, near Crab Park, and it's you're walking through that area while listening to the fire and the panic of a white settler woman with her baby running to the water and being rescued. And that is, a, of course, a narrative that many people... I think people know more now because Indigenous people have been performing and talking and there's finally more settlers listening to them. So that kind of thing is throughout the book. And uh, the other one that I think is most relevant here is uh, Marie Clements, who's a uh, Dene Métis artist, playwright, filmmaker, whatever. Marie Clements does everything. She does everything. She started uh, Urban Inc. Yeah, she started Urban Inc. She does everything. Um, She had an incredible show that was called The Road Forward which started as a commission for the, the final show at the 2010 Olympics in the Aboriginal Pavilion. And I think it was, you know, you remember the 2010 Olympics, it was a lot of it showing off Vancouver, the four host First Nations. The, and I think she had a commission to, to do something about the presence of Indigenous people here and the history of them. And 
she did, I think, uh, particularly on the kind of mega event stage, a really interesting thing, which was focus on the archives of the Native Voice, which is the paper that was published by the Native Brotherhood of BC, along with uh, support from Maisie Hurley, a super incredible, important figure in, in history. And these were the activists from the 19, like kind of 30s, 40s, 50s, who were absolutely at an incredible resistance to that colonial project here. And so she created this, this performance, which was a song called The Road Forward. The performers all dressed as if they were from the 1950s and they were the activists. And she projected all the archives, archival images from that. She then eventually developed that into a, a full concert and, and then eventually into an NFB musical documentary. Um, so that kind of thing where, you know, I'm writing about the Native Brotherhood of BC and their intervention to 1946 Jubilee show. And then while I'm writing about that, Marie Clements is staging this incredible performance. I don't know if you saw it at the time. I didn't see it at the time, but yeah. we screened the documentary yeah. at SFU and it's just a remarkable film. I know Russell Wallace is in there and a number of other, yeah. uh, it's it's really a remarkable piece yeah. of work. So there's this, anyway, so things like that were going on as I was writing the book. So I'm sort of digging in this history and, you know, immersing myself in these rabbit holes. And then when I come out of the archives, I go to an event like the Road Forward. And so that continuum and particularly the way that, the presence of Indigenous women now doing this work itself shows off the lie of the archive, right? Of course, if Indigenous women are here and now doing this work, of course, they were there and then doing that work as well. Like, like So it's just that the archive didn't document them. So did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Luna, is there anything you'd, you'd like to add? Um, I guess one last thing I was thinking that I didn't actually mention when I talked about the, the language, and it has to do with the title of the book. And I really do like to explain the title because I feel like it was a piece of learning that was very powerful to me and it, and really connects to the overall argument I try to make. So the book is called Against the Current and Into the Light. And that comes from the learning I did around, around location. So the Hunkaminam language, there's a lot to do in the language that has to do with the location of a speaker. You know, uh, movement to and from a speaker is, is what's documented or the presence or of something is being here and now or there and then there's auxiliary verbs. And so there's a lot of, that has to do with location than the, the actual speaker. So say like in French, articles have to do with feminine and masculine. Everything is feminine and masculine. In Hankaminam, things are present or not present. This is kind of like a different way of just even articulating the world. Another important understanding of that location has to do with cardinal direction. So rather than north, east, west, and south, Hunkaminam speakers locate themselves in, in relation to the shore and the water and the current in the water. And so they have different words that have to do with those, and that will give you a direction that you're going. And then those words are, you know, about the actual river, like you're on the shore, you're out from the shore, you're going against the current, you're going with the current. There's words that describe all that. But then those words are then transported and used in other places on the land as well, in order to relate to where you are in, in space. And the word for going against the current is also the word for being in a house that is, you're in a darker area of the house and you go towards the middle where there's a fire and you're going into the light. And so that word against the current is also into the light. And then as my language teachers, which I actually really should mention, teachers I had learned from, Larry Grant, Elder Larry Grant, Marnie Point and Jill Campbell, and then also Patricia Shaw from UBC, who are the, my language teachers over the years. So as I learned from them, there's also a word in the Hunkaminam language that has to do with the leadership, the head or the chief. And that word is actually based on 
that same word for going against the current into the light. And so that to me was a really powerful understanding of what does it mean to be a leader, right? That you have the, not just the strength to withstand a courage, but you actually have the, to go and move against it, or that you have also the courage to move from the shadows and into the light. And so eventually I started to understand as I attended all of these contemporary performances, including, I didn't talk about it, but the performances at Klahauya Village, the tourist site and that was built on top of the children's farmyard. And I started to understand like the kind of leadership and strength and courage that Indigenous performers who work in intercultural performances have. And so I think I eventually think about them almost as like frontline workers of decolonization, that they, that they face this and that they, and that they show that kind of a leadership. And so that's what the book is named, Against the Current to the Light, and that's what it's referring to. Yeah. And what's been the most interesting part of the reception of the book uh, for you in terms of feedback you've gotten or people you've heard from that have had a chance to, to read it? Well, it's been a, it's been a funny reception because, of course, the book was published in January 2020. And I had, my, I had a book launch scheduled at U of A for March of 2020. Obviously, it was canceled. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, I haven't had a lot of chance to, to talk about the book because we've all been rather preoccupied with the pandemic. I have, you know, periodically I get emails from people and they're coming from all different directions. Like I had one the other day from a, an art historian who's quite interested in copyright assignments because there's a section in the book where I talk about William Scow, the president of the Native Brotherhood of BC, who intervenes into the archive and gains the copyright over a set of photos from the Jubilee Citizens Committee. And it's a very strange thing. And so she was like, you know, questioning me on that piece of it. So because the book is it's just a very interdisciplinary mix of works from performance studies, works from archival historiography, uh, Indigenous studies work. Um, there's just, it's a whole lot. And then some of the response has been, a, in performance studies is a, an interdisciplinary field, obviously. Um, there is a, at SFU, an Institute for Performance Studies, led by Peter Dickinson. But it is a field that has been dominated by the U.S. Um, and certainly by a few particular institutions. And of course, there is there are yeah, performance studies practices in Canada, but they haven't necessarily been recognized and they don't necessarily transfer hemispherically in that same way. And that is one response has been to talk about how this work, even though it is so local, like it is sort of like, honestly, like I'm like, I'm super focused on not even all of Stanley Park. It's actually like the kind of like from Lumberman's Arch to Totem Poles to around the aquarium in the children's farmyard, like just really that chunk of the Stanley Park, right? Um, and then eventually a couple other places in the city, but it's so local, it's so West Coast. And, you know, the situation in the West Coast, it's so very specific in terms of the geography, the history, the relations over time with Europeans and Indigenous people. Like it's all very specific, yet one response has been talking about how this method that I that I worked on, of like understanding language, focusing on land, focusing on those relationships and using the, the tools of performance studies can actually just illuminate a history that has been ignored. Like, so that's been, that's been a pretty satisfying response that I feel like I, even though I worked so locally that people from elsewhere can find the story compelling because the stories are, they're compelling. It's fa- they're fascinating, I think. But also the way that I was able to uncover those stories is something that I hope other people could also, you know, make use of as a method. Great. Selena, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Below the Radar and sharing uh, about your book. Uh, we'll put links into the description. I hope uh, all of our listeners get a chance to read it as well. Thank you so much. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Anne. Thank you. 
Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Selena Couture. You can head to the show notes to find links to her work and to listen to her prior interview for Below the Radar discussing the politics of urban parks with Matt Hearn. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.